It's time for the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent ETA, Agent Ether, and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page, or group, whichever. This week's episode, from the files of Project Blue Book. Oh boy. Sorry for that blowout. Did you hear the blowout? Yeah, I'm going to probably cut that out. Aww. <laughs> I'm not I convinced had, listeners want to hear that. Especially I not learned the how to share listeners. in elementary school. That is not compelling podcast material. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get started, we have some uh, a couple of complaints. Yes, it's true. I have not been getting to the emails fast enough, and I apologize for that. Um, no excuses, but my excuse is, like, uh, this ain't my day job. I'm, uh, you know, very busy on some occasions, and I don't always get around to it. You know, sometimes I run out of time when I'm preparing for the show, editing, or whatever. But it's appreciated. Yeah, but we do appreciate the emails, and I promise I will get to them this week. So uh, I apo- apologies, but I'm going to get to, I'm going to prioritize it this week and make it happen, guys. Sorry about that. Awesome. All right. We have one item from Facebook to talk about before we get started on this week's topic. Yep. Shout out to Troy. Yeah. So why don't you tell us oh, about the Sage and Ether? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently there was a kind of poll taken on Facebook. People wanted to know what our agents look like. Now, of course, we mostly want to remain anonymous, but they put two and two together and what do you think about what they concluded? Well, I mean, it was close. All right. So it's <laughs> not entirely, not entirely off base. I mean, I am a person. I do have, you know, two eyes and a nose and all that. But me personally, I think they voted me, what, Jimmy Kimmel? Yeah. Is that who it was? I mean, it's not that far off. But in reality, just to be honest, just being completely honest here, I look a little bit more like, I don't know, Brock Lesnar, you know, maybe like, <laughs> maybe like two inches shorter, two inches shorter. Maybe like 20 pounds lighter, but still, that's pretty much the spitting image right there. (laughs) Did you take that many Picos? Uh, No, it's all natural, baby. (laughs) Oh, hell yeah, dude. My, my, I would say mine, um, it's not too far off besides the uh, aggressive socialism. (laughs) But I forget the name of that guy that was in Stranger Stranger Things, but uh, boy, is that guy a socialist and he's proud of it. That's not me. I can tell you that much. (laughs) <laughs> it's, his name in the show was Hopper. I forget the actor's name, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I tell you one thing. That guy can grow. He can grow a mighty beard. Better oh, yeah. Better than I can, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I try not to look at their politics because I just, I honestly, I don't care, you know? Well, and it's kind of like, you, you just, it's, you kind of come to expect this type of thing anyways in Hollywood and other, other places nowadays. You know what I mean? It's not surprising. It just mm-hmm. kind of is what it is at this point, you know? Damn yep. leftist liberals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, th- there's there's nothing wrong with with uh, plenty of the ideals that are, are from the left or the right, but I mean, when it comes to socialism in particular, I, ha- I have my opinions. You know, I, I'm, yeah. I'm not very for it. Is all you know? What yeah. I, mean? <laughs> I can understand but, that. But this is not a political show, and I I dare not. You know, I don't, I don't care to d- uh, dwell in that area too long. You know what I mean? Yeah. Let's let's get a, I, like I like to get do this show to get away from politics and all that stuff, man. Yeah. You know? Take I, a I, break. I, I wanna, Take a break. Yeah, yeah. I like an escape from that kind of bull hockey. Yeah. Yeah. I just like to mention too that that is me in the picture twenty years ago. Yeah, I think. Well, I think that is actually, actually a picture is. of Agent Ether. Yeah. Yeah. At first, I thought, oh shit. Where they, where'd, they, where'd they find that? <laughs> <laughs> and the one for Agent Kruger as well. I was really surprised. Like, I think that might actually be a picture of him. It looks exactly like him. That is by far the most accurate one Poor right Agent there. Kruger. For yeah. sure. And I just also like to say that Agent Kruger couldn't make it today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we can say whatever we want about him. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, oh, we, we appreciate it. I, actually, I haven't been on the Facebook page yet. That's run by Agent Ether. But I actually need to get on there. Unfortunately, I haven't had a chance, but I'll, I'll get on there one of these days. Seems like a fun group. All right. Well, let's get into this week's episode. So I wanted to do a, an episode where we all just kind of chose a few case files to talk about from Project Blue Book because it ran for decades and they had so many good reports and most of them nobody's ever even heard of. Like they didn't make any books about them. Nobody talks about them. They're just sort of 
lost to time. So I thought it'd be interesting if we all just went through and picked a couple of interesting things and, you know, just to talk about it, kind of like a power hour sort of format. I really like this topic because when I went in and started searching for materials, like you said, there's just so much. And then it had a view counter to see how many people had looked at the documents I was looking at. And sometimes it was zero. Sometimes no one had looked at this particular document that I was reading. Yeah, which is crazy because it's such a tremendous resource. Anybody curious if you want to look up some of the stuff we're talking about, or if you want to go just delve through the files yourself, all you got to do is just type into your search engine, Fold 3 Blue Book Files. That's F-O-L-D, the number three. Fold 3 Blue Book Files. They have, uh, I don't know, it's probably not everything, but they got a ton of stuff on there. And I don't know who exactly, but somebody paid somebody to go down and scan all these documents because the government has not put these online. They they had a private party go down there and scan, or probably several people or a whole team. I mean, there's so much, you would have had a team to do it. But I mean, that in and of itself would be an interesting story to look into. But yeah, go check it out. It's a free resource and it's a tremendous resource. And it's a lot of fun to look through and see what people are talking about and what they've seen in the past. Right. All right. Well, why don't we get started? I think Agent Ether wanted to talk about one of the Blue Book forms itself. Yeah, I was looking through and I just came upon randomly this U.S. Air Force technical information form. And it's a questionnaire they use for quote unquote research purposes And I just thought it was really well done. It was thorough and it allowed whatever person was witnessing the event to really describe in detail what they'd seen. Right. And they ask specific questions. So if you ask a a witness, what was the angular size of the of the object you saw? They would say, I don't know. But that's actually really important data for somebody trying to research this size or this size, this topics. They need to know, you know, what the apparent size of the thing was. But instead, they ask questions like, okay, how big was it compared to a dime held at arm's length? So they they do questions that your average person can answer that gives them actual scientific data. It's a really well put together questionnaire. The only information I couldn't find is how people actually got these forms. So I'm assuming they reported it or called it in. But they would have had to call it into the Air Force specifically, and then they mailed them out the seven-page form with a return envelope. So I think the way this worked was somebody would report something to the military or the Air Force or whatever, and then it, depending on um, the, if they provided enough data or probably it was just standard at some point, they would mail them back the form and ask them to fill it out. Because I saw an awful lot of files that did not have the form filled out But there was a letter, they had a a copy of the letter that they sent to the witness that basically said, we don't have enough information to evaluate your sighting. Please fill out this form and send it back to us. So I suspect that's how they operated with this thing. And I think it's quite clever. And whoever wrote the form knew what they were doing. Right. It's a really well put together form. So I have a specific case where this form was actually filled out. And I just wanted to go over uh, what was written in the form specifically. So on the first page, uh, you put in the basics. Where did you see it? What time was it? What's your address? And then they ask if it was continuously in your sight and the conditions in the sky. So was it nighttime? Was it daytime? Was it clear or cloudy? So here our witness, he's from, uh, let's see, Fort Collins. I think that's in Colorado. This was on September 23rd, 1966. And he saw an object up on the horizon. It was in sight for 8 to 10 seconds on a bright, clear night. Okay. 1966, huh? 1966. Well, just coincidentally, that's the year I focused on for a specific reason. But why don't you continue and I'll get to mine later. Sure. And then on the next page, it asks about the weather. And it's very specific. If there were clouds, you can circle if they were clear hazy, scattered, if they were thick or heavy. So you have several options to describe the sky. And then they ask you about the all um, then they ask you about the object if it appeared solid, transparent, like a vapor as a light, or if you don't remember, there's an option on almost every question to circle I don't remember. Yeah, really well put together. Yeah, it was. So this particular witness says there were many stars, but he doesn't remember if there was a moon. Again, it was a clear, dry night. And the object appeared as a light, and it had the same brightness as a star. 
It was fuzzy and blurred. And then he answered no to all the other questions. Hmm. All right. And then on the next page, the form asks if the object disappeared while you were watching it, did it move in front of or behind something at any point in time? And then they do ask the angular size and then they do it very cleverly. They ask the witness to take a matchstick, hold it up at an angle from the horizon and look at things relative to the tip of the match and tell them how much the object would have been covering. Ah, uh, that's a, that's an old trick. I've used that one many times at a one night stand. <laughs> <laughs> and then in you know question I mean? 19. Perspective is everything. Yeah. Perspective, yeah. So then in question 19, you draw a picture <laughs> that shows the shape of your object and they want you to label things like the wings or if there was a vapor trail and place an arrow besides the object in the direction of its travel. I'm sorry okay. to interrupt, but yesterday I had a vapor trail. I swear to God, the paint was like peeling off the wall. <laughs> was it colored or clear? <laughs> oh, there was color. I mean, not, not like in the air, but like on, on my draws, you know, like I had to wide wash them. I'm not, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna lie. It is what it is. Sometimes you trust too much. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the witness stated that the object was on the horizon, then the light slowly faded out of sight and it didn't move behind or in front of anything. There was no sound or color, and when he drew a picture, it looked like a boomerang with a series of lights, and it traveled in a straight and forward direction. He had no estimation of the size or speed. He was outdoors in a residence, and he observed it with the naked eye. And that's interesting because one of the questions they ask if you observed it through any kind of glass, such as a telescope, windshield, or sunglasses... Hmm. I thought that's an interesting question. Why would yeah. they ask that? Well, because under certain conditions, like say if you're in a car, you might report a reflection on the glass, like maybe somebody else in the car is using some light object with like a light or something. Light refraction. And you see it reflecting off the window and you think, oh my God, UFO, but it's actually just a reflection. Or yeah. maybe, yeah, what, what's up, ETA? It was, just, it was just a glow bug. Yeah, glow bug. Yeah, you never know. And. Yeah. Some types of materials you can look through, like polarized sunglasses, for example, can have a pretty significant effect on what you're seeing. So they probably want to know very specifically how you're seeing it. That's a very specific questionnaire, like yeah. I said. All right, then we're on to another page, question 27. There's a lot of questions on this questionnaire. Uh, they want you to draw a sketch that helps them estimate how far above the horizon it was. And you label it from A to B. And there's also a compass you can label to show the direction of the object, which I found hysterical because I never know which way I'm facing. It could mm. be like upside down, north, south. I just, I don't know what direction I'm looking at. Is that the dude with a bunch of arms? Yes, yeah. no, it's the dude with a bunch of arms. Yeah, so it's a picture of a man and it has like a, like a, what is it, like 90 degrees? Yeah, yeah. So it has a 90 degree and it has different images of his hand pointing at various positions so that you can easily estimate, like if you look at, okay, it was this much above the horizon. I don't know how many degrees that is, but if you look at the picture, you're like, oh, that's really easy to say. Okay. It was about 45 degrees, you know? Right. It was the picture of the compass that made me giggle. Yeah. I, I don't know which direction's north. <laughs> And then it had you draw a picture that shows the motion of an object. And I thought that was kind of interesting, too, because if the object is zipping around, how are you supposed to draw that? Now, this particular yeah. case, it wasn't. But what if it's like zipping all around and then zooms off at a 45 degree angle? How on earth are you going to label that? Right. You know, uh, let's see. So draw some more pictures, label it. Then they ask if there were other witnesses and for their names and addresses. Who did you report this too, and what is the date that you completed this questionnaire? So that's 35 questions and seven pages total. So our witness says the object seemed to move down the horizon from north to south, and it held a formation of several objects in a line. He described it as eight to ten lights traveling together in boomerang formation, and that he'd never seen anything like it before. That was one of the questions, too. Have you ever seen anything like this before? Right. It's an interesting case because, to me, the witness didn't embellish anything. The report, a lot of it, he answered no to yeah. the questions. You know, it didn't seem like he was trying to overly elaborate. He was just giving his statement. I saw an object. 
It looked like a boomerang. It had lights on it. It traveled for a little while on the horizon and then it faded from view and I was with a friend, basically. You know, that to me is credible. It's a credible story. Yeah. And the interesting thing about a lot of these, some of them will write letters describing what they saw. And quite a lot of these letters say, basically, you get the impression that they're just doing their civic duty. They feel that they're, they have a responsibility to report these things. But also, quite a lot of these letters say, please leave my name out of this. I have a life. I don't want to be ridiculed. I want nothing to do with any sort of publicity. I'm just doing my dude, my duty as a citizen, basically, you know? Yeah. And that's a common thread in, in a lot of UFO sightings just in general. So to, to me, it, it almost kind of adds a little bit of credibility. You know, I, I know that that's, it's not something concrete to go off of, but it is kind of something that's a common thread, I think. You, you know what I mean? No, it's true. And then the very next case after that was one year later, exactly. And it looks to me like somebody different filled out the form. The handwriting is different. Um, in the first form, the male was 21 years of age. In the second form, the male was 19 years of age. They were both in the same place, though. Um, the second witness, though, in the second event was actually at the University of Colorado. It was an on-campus sighting with a fellow fraternity brother. And although they were unable to correlate it with known traffic or phenomena, they would later say that it was inconclusive and there was conflicting information because they had received another report about some object with vapor trails. Mm-hmm. And since the original report didn't have vapor trails in it. They just said that there was inconsistent data. Right. When you're looking through these, every file has a uh, a cover page that has a summary of all the information for the case, usually like one paragraph or even sometimes just one or two sentences. And it'll have, uh, an, it'll have an evaluation as far as what it is. Is it unexplained? Is it, uh, did they determine it was psychological, aka crackpot? Is it an airplane? Is it a meteor or whatever? They would they have they had specific categories that they would put it in. But a lot of these, if you look at the cover page, you might think it's okay, conclusion, meteor. And then it says witness, the summary might say witness saw a descending light that looked like a meteor, basically. Right. But if you if you just read the cover page, then most of these cases you're gonna be like, well, there's nothing here. But a lot of them you look at that are so uh, supposedly explained. If you look at the what the witnesses actually reported, it doesn't really match what the conclusion is that whoever filled out that cover page. So it, it depends, too, on what year you're looking at, because the later years, especially under um, Hector Quintanilla, uh, he was more like he didn't really investigate stuff as so much as just try to explain everything. So there, there you know, very little investigation, whereas um, under Ruppelt, he did a lot more efforts to try to investigate what was actually going on. So it just depends on what year you're looking at. Yeah, there. I mean, the so these forms, they just went on and on. And some of them you couldn't read. They were yeah. legible, which I think is a real shame because, you know, they're lost to history. Yeah, you can. So Fold 3 actually has tools to change like the contrast and the brightness and stuff. And some of those, you can actually tweak it a little bit to make it more readable and you can actually read a lot of those ones that are hard to read. It just takes a lot of time and effort. It's, it, yeah. But I've actually, I did that for some of the files. Yeah. You you know, especially for one of the ones I'm going to talk about. Some of them are quite faded. Yes. So, yeah, some of them are completely illeg- illegible. It's true. All right. So is that, uh, is that what you got for your, um, for your form you wanted to talk about? That's, that's what I had for the form specifically, yes. Okay. Well, I'll get into some of what I was looking at. I wanted to look at 1966 specifically because it has one of my favorite case files, which is the uh, Swamp Gas case. You know, the famous sightings where (laughs) Agent ETA is all over the Swamp Gas. (laughs) What? What happened? I blacked out. (laughs) The, uh, (laughs) The first episode I did for this podcast was about this case. And the Blue Book file you can find under uh, in March 1966 under the entry for Southern Michigan. And it's under Southern Michigan rather than a specific location because there are two main sightings. And that would be that would be in uh, Dexter and Hillsdale. Those are the two main sightings. There's also um, Ann Arbor as well. But uh, th- this file is really extensive. It's got 179 pages total. It has internal memos, newspaper clippings, witness statements, just different reports, all kinds of crazy stuff. 
And looking through these files, you get you get a view that's kind of different than what you do from like reading newspapers. For example, in this particular file, there's an internal memo that mentions a crashed UFO. Um, let me scroll down here. Uh, yeah, it says on March 24th, they got a report that a UFO crashed into a gravel pit. The, um, and I was like, wait, wait, wait what? <laughs> a crashed UFO? I've never heard of this. So, but I couldn't find any other, that's the only mention of it in this file. And Googling it, I couldn't find any mention of a crashed UFO on March 24, 1966. But you're like, wait a minute here. Did, where did the information for this go? Was, the, was it covered up? Is all the other documents, or were they, was this an oversight that they left this memo in here? I don't know. It's just really weird. But that's the kind of really bizarre stuff that you can find in these files. Like a crashed UFO is a pretty big deal, right? Like Roswell, for example, like you should, you should have heard of it. If it was a crashed UFO, you think you would have heard of it, but no, it's just this kind of little memo. And you know, in the beginning of the blip. file, yeah, a little blip and you're like, all right, well, cool beans. Wait, wait, hold on. What? <laughs> Let's go back to that for a minute. Yeah. So this file, this particular file, um, March, 1966, Southern Michigan, their conclusion was other marsh gas, right? And just, I won't go over the whole thing because I already did in the first episode, but it was, uh, there was a couple of prominent sightings. So the first one was on March 20th, had uh, multiple witnesses, um, at least 40 people, at least 12 policemen, but also a lot of those, like the policemen called their families and their families all came to the area. And like a lot of people, this, this whole area was just like complete bedlam. But just, just a couple of brief reminders of what the people saw. So a farmer named Frank Manor said, I got within 500 yards of the thing and it looked pyramid shaped. It had a light here and a light there and what looked like a porthole. Another guy there named patrolman uh, Robert Hunwell said it had red and green flashing lights and at one time zipped down to hover within 10 feet of a police patrol car. When it rose again, it was joined by a similar object. Some witnesses saw orbs. Some described the object as a football shape, which could be a saucer-like object seen on edge maybe. Um, Frank Manor himself gave a really detailed description, and he said it had like a waffle-like texture and it had like an antenna and stuff. It's um, you, know, you could go on and on with the details, but we'll just leave it at that. Okay. So wait, wait a minute. Yeah. Did, you, did you say that that fellow's name was Robert Hungwell? <laughs> I wish. What, no. a, what an alpha. I know, right? <laughs> no, it was uh, Honeywell. H-U-N-I-W-E-L-L. Uh, Honeywell? Oh, okay. I don't know. I guess yeah. I just kind of heard what I wanted to then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I wish it was Honeywell. That'd be awesome, dude. <laughs> that's going to be my name. That's going to be my, my new is- online persona is going to be Brad yeah. Honeywell. <laughs> I got a new gamer tag. Yeah. You just change your name, Agent Hungwell. Yeah, Agent Hungwell. <laughs> I don't know what kind of pics they're going to post on Facebook now. Yeah. I don't want to know. Oh, yeah, dude. All right. The, the other prominent sighting for this case was on March 21st at Hillsdale. And that was the college where we had dozens of students mostly, and then a couple of adults saw it. But, you know, they reported pretty much the same thing that was, well, not the exact, but very, very similar to what was seen on the previous evening. So that, I mean, that's just a quick refresher. So what I was doing here is that there were a lot of sightings throughout 1966 and even before and after, if you want to look through that have very similar descriptions to what was seen on those two nights. So I wanted to dig through the files and find some similar sightings because it sort of gives more credibility to what these people saw. Not that you really need it because you already have multiple independent witnesses all reporting the exact same thing, but it just makes it a little more interesting when you notice that people didn't just see this thing in Michigan. They saw this all over the country. Like there's sightings from everywhere. This thing was zipping all over the place. And a lot of these sightings people don't know about, like they're not well reported on. They're just sort of lost to time. Like I said, even the swamp gas case, although it has some notoriety because, you know, the, the swamp gas thing has sort of become part of the vernacular, like, you know, sort of like Venus or something. Uh, it's still not super well known compared to other cases like Roswell. But anyways, it's my favorite book. So let's take a book. It's my favorite case. So let's take a look at, uh, at some of these other cases. I got one. What's that? All right. So um, it, it actually uh, references a, a U.S. Navy pilot. Um, this guy's name was um, Hopper Tarley. And um, Hopper Tarley was a, a very, very uh, 
you know, um, accomplished uh, pilot, very talented, you know, but he was haunted by an accident in which his father lost control of a jet pilot <laughs> pilot or a jet fighter, you know, mm-hmm. um, he's actually con- uh, contacted, uh, contacted after retirement by a, a Lieutenant, uh, James Block. I thought uh, you were going to say by an alien. Yeah. <laughs> oh, aliens too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but, um, anyways, uh, Hopper Charlie's played by Charlie Sheen. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> never mind. No, you know, never mind. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a good Wait, case. I recommend it to everybody. That was, no, that was, I was hot shots. Never mind. <laughs> good movie. Damn good movie. Yeah. Good, stupid fun. All right, let's get back to uh, 1966. <laughs> so, so wait, I, I got one more, right? All right, go for it, go for it. All right, so um, there's uh, this uh, like a detective, right? Uh-huh. And uh, his name's um, Frank Drebin. Oh, wait, God damn it. No, that's Naked Gun. Never mind, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. All you know right. what? Never mind. All right, so I have one from um, Socrates, New York on January 16th. The conclusion was Jupiter. The witness saw a white football-shaped object three smaller objects moved out of the larger one and went to the west. The object was about the size of a dime at arm's length. It moved to the west, then back to where it was first sighted. It went back and forth several times. The sighting lasted for about one hour and 30 minutes until the object faded out of sight to the west. Two patrolmen also saw the object. A photograph was taken, but it's not included with the file, and I'm guessing that once it was developed, it was never actually handed over to Project Blue Book. Because back then, you didn't have like a one-hour development, I'm guessing. You had to, you know, send it in, and it was a whole process. But yeah, the report also says that it was possibly caused by a temperature inversion. I mean, I guess. I've seen Jupiter in the sky before, and it's never looked football-shaped, and I've never seen it moving back and forth and doing all these shenanigans. So that's what I was saying. I sort of mentioned earlier, the conclusion doesn't necessarily match what the witnesses are describing. But... Then again, I'm not an astronomer, so who knows? Maybe uh, it is possible. I'm assuming they said Jupiter instead of Venus based on where Jupiter was on the horizon that day. Yeah, but I mean, if if you've ever seen Jupiter in the sky, it's just like a bright star. It's not, I don't know, it's not going to look larger than a dime or the size of a dime. That's ridiculous. It's not going to look football shaped. I, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe the witness needed glasses and it was very, very fuzzy. Maybe they were really, really farsighted. Yes, exactly. <laughs> maybe, maybe it involved a hangover. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Anything's possible. All right, here's another one from Houston, Texas on January 15th. The conclusion was aircraft. Multiple witnesses saw a red object traveling east. One witness said it was round with red lights all around it. Another said it was V-shaped. It was about the size of a basketball, and the shape could not be determined. There was no vapor trail, and the object made no noise. The observation lasted about five minutes. Um... I don't know, like, that one's kind of interesting. I don't know how something the size of a basketball in the sky could be a, an airplane. That's yeah. pretty big, you know? <laughs> but Well, I mean, what, did it appear to be the size of a basketball from their perspective? Or, like, did they think it was, like, it something like. the size of a basketball, oh. like, in the air? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's I, some of these are hard to tell. But the way I read it was yeah. that it was the size of, the apparent size of a basketball, like, at arm's length, right? Which, okay. that ain't no airplane, man. That is huge, right? But yeah, yeah. Ah, who knows? It's maybe it could be like a, a V shape of airplanes under the right conditions could have looked sort of like a basketball or, or a size of a basketball if it got distorted and it looked like one object, I guess. I think it was a weather balloon. Yeah. Who knows? It could be. I mean, there was at the time people may not have been super familiar with weather balloons and there were a lot of weather balloons being launched and they did look very strange under the right conditions. And there are an awful lot of UFO sightings that can be attributed um, definitively to weather balloons. So, you know, anything's possible. I mean, I don't necessarily have an answer for any of these. I think it's just interesting to talk about them, you know? I have a case from 66. All right. And I picked this one because it was from West Virginia and we just did our Mothman episode. Oh, sweet. Okay. Yeah, it's from Hedgeville. And I liked this one because the letter from the witness was handwritten Mm -hmm. and then scanned in. So yeah. you're looking at the original statement, basically. Right. Oh, in his handwriting, it was done in cursive. Mm-hmm. So it was really hard to read. And yes. I can't remember the last time I read cursive anyways, you yeah. know, with, with computers and everything. Um, but, you know, I, I did manage to read it. So there was a 17-year-old and he went in to call his brother for supper. He saw three objects that looked oval in shape and shiny like a quarter in the sun There were no wings or tail, and I quote, it moved up and down and across like they were playing Jump the Frog. Hmm. I assume that's 
some sort of game they play in West Virginia. I would think like a children's game, maybe. Yeah. There was a clear night. There was no sound. It was about 100 feet away and a mile up. What do you guys think? That's an interesting case. I mean, who knows? Yeah, so it gets more interesting. Okay. (laughs) He writes on a few pages, and then later he says, two weeks later, I witnessed a green light playing lightning bug bouncing all around. Specifically, it was bouncing all around him. Hmm. Yes, like a glow bug. So not up in the sky, but a green light bouncing all around him. And then he asked the recipient to find out why he could see the green light, but other people couldn't, why he is fortunate enough to see these things, how he can get in contact with Redacted from another (laughs) galaxy. P.S. Write back soon. P.S.S. I believe in UFOs and I'm a very religious person. Hmm. Wait, wait. So <laughs> he's talking about another person, a person from another galaxy, and their name was redacted? No, this the name was redacted from the... Oh, it's like a particular officer or somebody in the military, maybe? I don't know. He wants to get in contact with someone from another galaxy, but whoever it was that he wrote down, it's been... Redacted, yeah. Yeah. So that means that's a real person. Maybe. From another galaxy, because they only maybe, redact yeah. the information if it's a real person, right? Like, sure. If they if he said, you know, like I wanted to get in touch with Zarni Whoop from the Andromeda Galaxy, then they're gonna say, All right, well, that's not a real person. We don't have to redact it. So that kind of makes me wonder. It all makes me wonder. Zarni Whoop. Okay. So I want to talk about this uh spaceship called the um Nostromo. And um it follows this uh, main character called Ripley. <laughs> and um played by Sigourney Reaver. Fuck. Do you mean Never do you mind. mean Bipley? Dipley, yeah, 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 Dipley and shit. <laughs> I'm not familiar and, with and, this case file. Oh yeah, oh, you've seen, you've seen this one. Alien. Let me tell you. Oh. Let me tell you. She looks, <laughs> yeah. she looks damn good wearing a wife beater. Oh yeah. Hey man, you know, Scorny is that what Weaver? she's wearing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a man, very, she was very nice lady. She, she was in her prime. Yeah. I digress. All right. February second, <laughs> uh, Salisbury, North Carolina. Two witnesses. The conclusion: unidentified. And that's a rare thing to see in the files, that they actually call it unidentified. There was a letter that was written on March 24th. And it's, uh, so there's two letters. One was the actual description of the event, and one was a letter to uh, Dr. Hynek. He was the lead scientific investigator. And remember, we're talking about stuff related to the swamp gas case. Because this is, uh, I was surprised at just how well written this letter was. But here we go. Enclosed is a copy of a record that I have made of the sighting of a UFO on the night of February 2nd, 1966, by my husband and me. At the time we sighted the object, my husband asked me not to report it because of the general skeptical attitude of the public concerning a UFO sighting. Also, we did not know to whom it should be reported, but he did suggest that I make a record of the sighting while it was still fresh in my mind. Since that time, I have been trying to convince myself that I did not see what I saw, and I have been trying to come up with some reasonable explanation for it, since I had not previously believed in flying saucers. But after reading about the recent sightings in Michigan, now remember, um, just as an aside, the Michigan sightings, the ones that were nationally and internationally publicized, those happened on the 20th and 21st. So this letter was written on the 24th. So, getting back to the letter, um, after reading about the recent sightings in Michigan, I am convinced that the object I saw is of the same type as those seen in Michigan. I realize, of course, that since the newspapers have reported the sightings, which incidentally is where I got your name, that you will be swamped with reports of UFOs from all over the country. A.K.A. Mass Hysteria. Which, I I can't help but think that that was an intentional pun or whatever, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I, I like this, this, uh, le- who are, it, the name's redacted, but whoever wrote this definitely has a good sense of humor. Um, let's see, where was I? You know, I've yeah. always wanted to like legally change my first name to redacted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I awesome. just wonder what kind of confusion that would cause, you know? Well, I remember reading about somebody who got a custom license plate and they uh-huh. decided it would be funny to call it null. <laughs> and okay. whenever somebody they didn't have the information for somebody and they gave them a ticket they would enter it on the computer as null uh-huh. in this particular yeah. state and so then they were just swamped with tickets like <laughs> thousands nice. of tickets 
hundreds of thousand dollars worth of fines. They said it was a big headache and a hassle. Oh it was not funny to them. And, you know, it was in the newspaper. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. Whoops yeah. a daisy. That'd be a good mind boggle. <laughs> <laughs> there it is, folks. Mind boggle of the week. I didn't do one this week. All right. Where was I? Oh, here we go. Uh, swamp with UFOs from all over the country. But I decided to report this anyhow, since I have felt a burden of responsibility ever since I saw the object. Concerned citizen. Yeah. It has seemed to me all along that someone should be well should be informed about the object's being in this area. And that is what puzzles me. What is there in this area that anyone would be interested in observing? There is, directly behind our house, a 300-foot-high microwave tower that is used by the State Highway Patrol. About a quarter mile north of us, a big building is under construction by the Cannon Hill Company. Directly across from that is the Carolina Tough Light Company, which has dug out large craters in the ground. Other than these items, there is nothing of interest in the area. Now, this is a really interesting idea. Um, Whenever I see these things, let's just assume for a moment that these are aliens and they are coming here to observe or study or do something. Like, we always assume that we're the most interesting thing on the planet, when I always wonder, like, what if they don't really care about us that much? What if they're here for a completely different reason? Like, they're just, they're looking at magnetic fields or whatever, you know? What about the dolphins? Yeah, dolphins or, like, that was in the- They enjoy, hey, they enjoy having sex too. That means they're smart. The wicked smart, right? Right. Well, and that was one of the things that um, I think Alan Hynek said about the swamp gas case. He said that, you know, this is ridiculous. Why would aliens be hovering over a swamp? Like, as if- you know, there's no people there. There's nothing interesting there. When in reality, a swamp is absolutely teeming with life. That would be one of the most fascinating things to study on a planet. You get, you know, everything on up from little tiny microbes to little animals, frogs, stuff decaying and stuff. It's like just like an entire little world that I think that would might be one of the most interesting places to study, actually. And if you look at us, we just sent, you know, rovers to to Mars. Yeah. What, what is there on Mars that's interesting? Right. We put so many resources, not just Obelisks. us, but other countries, yeah. into getting our stuff there and our technology to study this barren planet. Just to look for obelisks. some ice crystals or something. Right, yeah. exactly. I think, I think they're really looking for obelisks and pyramids. Well, even if they are, let's say they are, those are probably long in the past. It's not exactly teeming with life. And so here on Earth, you know, it's a different kind of a story. So yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if, like Agent Anderson said, that's why they were here. Yeah, you, you never know. Maybe they are here to study us. Maybe they aren't. Maybe it was uh, not an alien at all. We don't know. But it's just interesting yeah. food for thought. All right. I, actually, I yeah. actually really kind of enjoy the... Uh, the thought process of like, I, so I know that like some people have theorized like our, our like hominids is, is that the kind of like a, like, you know, like the, the platform on which the, uh, the human species is based off of yeah might not be the most efficient platform. Like I just, I, you know, I, I jokingly like a uh, reference to dolphins, you know, which is obviously they are very intelligent. There's no doubt about that, but I actually really like some of the sci-fi stuff that it, um, has been, you know, um, Proposed with like octopuses or octopi, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever the name is, you know, yeah. but, uh, I really enjoy that one story about like the supposed scientists that went down to the Antarctica and, uh, drilled into like a, uh, underground body of water and found like this really like advanced, like form of like, uh, octopus that like might've like, like killed some people or something like that. I- I'm not so sure how true that story is or, or, you know, I haven't looked too much into it, but I do find it extremely, uh, you know, fascinating. Apparently, octopuses are complete assholes. Like, they'll just go around punching other fish and stuff just for. <laughs> oh, really? Like, yeah, they're not, they don't want to eat it or whatever. They'll just see something, they'll go, whap. You're like, hey, you dick. <laughs> <laughs> that turtle wasn't doing nothing to you, buddy. What are you doing? And when you mess with it, it sprays ink in your face. How rude. Yeah, it's very sounds rude. A lot, sounds a lot like uh, human behavior. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've always thought about that, actually. And one thing I, I wonder is so there's, if you look at the, the universe, a different planet with life on it it's going to have the same rules that we have on our planet, more or less, at least the same physics, gravity, light, whatever. So as just like a solar system is going to form in a fairly predictable way, what if life itself forms in a very, fairly predictable way, and there's only a handful of ways that an intelligent civilization can actually form? Like you have water-based creatures are probably less likely to become intelligent than, let's say, a land-based Maybe not impossible, but maybe less likely, right? I don't know. It's just something interesting to think about because 
I always see these science fiction shows, and I at first I thought, or when I was younger, I thought, well, it, this is stupid. They like these aliens would look completely different than us. They wouldn't have two arms and two legs that, like we do, two eyes and whatever. But maybe that's like two eyes, two arms, two legs. Maybe that's just just like how you know planets form. Maybe that's just how life is most likely to form, right? Maybe not how guaranteed, awesome, but how, how awesome would it be if like narwhals like became you know like a, a you know intelligent species like. You know what I mean? Yeah. Those, well, those guys would be, I mean, cause you have this big old giant unicorn freaking horn off your, your dome piece. And like, yeah, I mean, you know how like sometimes in a bar, you know, us humans will get into a, a heated discussion and like you get headbutted, you know, or you headbutt somebody else. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've seen it. It's happened. You know, I'm not going to, you know, it is what it is, but like, yeah, narwhals, boy, that would be a, a bloody situation. You I know, know right? <laughs> the, <laughs> like, this guy, is that guy, you have a bunch of Vlad the Impalers walking around, you know, like. So now they're walking around. Yeah. So they're on land <laughs> narwhals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they became so that small. So they're unicorns. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, narwhals are like, to me, they're like a legit cryptid that we just so happen to have proof that they exist. But man, those things are weird. I know, right? Yeah. Narwhals oh. are awesome. All right. So back to the letter here. <laughs> it is immaterial to me as to whether this report will be considered valid or not. I have done what I feel should be done by reporting it. However, if you care to use any of the information in the reports, you may do so, but I cannot give you permission to use our names. I plan to start teaching school in another year, and this would hurt my chances of getting a contract. Also, we have a child who would be adversely affected by the sarcastic comments from her playmates. If there's any further information that I can possibly give you, please feel free to write. But as I have requested, please do not use our names in any reports or publications. Sincerely redacted, Salisbury, North Carolina, and I, I I know that's like a bit much. That's not even the sighting, but I just found that letter just totally fascinating. That you know, just I don't know, it's just really interesting. Now here's uh, below the letter, she sketched out like the layout of her house. There's like the nearby tower and stuff, the path the UFO took and and stuff. And the letter itself was typed, but underneath the sketch, she hand wrote. Incidentally, there are no swamps in this area of the state. (laughs) (laughs) And here's the witness statement that of what she actually saw on the night of February 2, 1966, I saw an unidentified flying object. I turned out the lights and went to bed shortly after 1115 PM. A couple of minutes after retiring, I heard a dog barking loudly behind our house. Upon opening the curtain to look out, I saw a strange object hovering over the trees in the yard of a house behind us. The object is difficult to describe, for it was in a tremendous state of activity while hovering in the same place. It never remained absolutely still, but kept moving gently back and forth, yet hovering in the same spot. It seemed to be of a silver-colored material, but there were small objects resembling balls in constant motion around it, circling around oh. it at a tremendous speed as if in orbit around the object. So how many pairs of these balls were there? <laughs> More than two. <laughs> hey, this UFO had balls, baby. <laughs> <laughs> the object emitted a great deal of light, which changed colors about five times as quickly as an ordinary light switch can be switched on and off. The predominant colors that I could distinguish were red, green, and white. But it was never just one single color. It was a mixture of these colors constantly flashing. The colors seemed to be coming from the objects whirling around the central silver-colored object. The main object seemed to be of a diamond shape, with the ball-shaped objects whirling in an orbit around it. The balls were not all whirling in the same path. They each had a different path from the others. I would estimate that there were approximately a dozen of these round objects. There also seemed to be little explosions shooting out from the object. These also produced a great deal of light and color. I was fascinated by the tremendous amount of activity going on around the object. Below is a rough sketch of the object, which I have copied from the sketch I made last night. The object hovered in the same position for approximately three or four minutes. Then suddenly it moved in the direction away from me to the northeast. The speed with which it moved was so rapid that I could not begin to estimate it, nor could I estimate the size of the object, since I do not know how far up in the sky it was, 
although the area over which it hovered is only about 300 feet from our bedroom window. The object began to get farther and farther away. About this time, 11.50 p.m., my husband came home from work. He located the binoculars and we used them to watch the object, which had, by this time, gradually swerved to the east, making a large, sweeping curve. It was too late for my husband to see the shape of the object, but he did see the explosions and the changes in lights and colors. We watched the object until 1 a.m. I do not know what the object was, but I hereby swear that I saw the object as described, and I have described it to the best of my ability. Now, that's like one of the most fascinating UFO reports I've ever seen. I've never heard anything like it. No, and it does bear a lot of really strong resemblances to the swamp gas sightings. And one of the things, like the swamp gas sightings, that this makes me wonder is, are we seeing something that exists in a fourth dimension? Because if something was a fourth dimensional craft, what would what would you see? You would see a sphere, because you can only see three dimensions, right? And also, the way she described it, like it was hovering in place, but it was also moving back and forth, sort of like it was oscillating or something, like... It just, I don't know, this, it just makes my imagination go wild and just, you know, what if? Like, what the heck was this thing? She seems like a genuine witness. She doesn't seem like she's trying to profit off of it. Does not seem like she's crazy or a crackpot as she would have been described by the team, Blue Book team. If you take this at face value, it's just like, whoa, you know, like, <laughs> what the heck, dude? You know, it's crazy. So the, another sighting on March 4th, I'm not sure how related this is, but uh, because it had red and green lights, I feel like it may be related because, the, again, that's what one of the many of the witnesses reported for the swamp gas case. Anyways, the witness reported a red and silver object with red and green lights moving from south to north. It moved in front of the moon. No sound was heard from the object. The official conclusion was that it was an aircraft. The witness drew a cigar-shaped object and compared its size to the moon. They drew the moon next to the object. Um, compared to the size of the moon, it looks like way too big. To have been an airplane. Like, I guess it looks like it was maybe one-fifth the size of the moon. Uh, maybe it was an airplane flying low. But if the moon, if an airplane looked that big next to the moon, I kind of feel like you would have heard it. It would have made noise. But uh, maybe, who knows? It could be anything. And a cigar-shaped object does kind of, you know, get my skeptical juices flowing. Like, okay, well, if you see an aircraft at night and you see it under certain lighting conditions, it very well could be cigar shaped. You know, just think about what the fuselage of most, you know, jet airliners look like. Looks like a cigar kind of, you know, so who knows? But I thought that was still an interesting sighting. All right. And then the next one I have is on March 27th from Xenia, Ohio. That's Z-E-N-I-A. And I, I'm, I'm going to admit, I did pick this one because I am a fan of the show Xena. <laughs> and it sort of reminded oh. me of that, you know. It's, I remember that show, The Warrior Princess. Yeah, it's got one letter different. So I don't know anything yeah, about gotta, Zinnia, Ohio. I gotta but say that that show was pretty all right. For, yeah. for it had some cringiness, especially towards the end of the series. Oh yeah, there, but, oh, yeah. But you know, yeah, no, that had some. Uh, that was an all right show. You well, know, that was all right. One of one of my favorite um, moments from that show is so the, a lot of fans really liked the whole the whole lesbian subtext that they were going with. Oh yeah. Well, they. They like hinted towards it all the time. You know what I mean? Like, and like, I, I don't remember like the whole series. I'm not sure if I, I watched the whole thing, mm -hmm. but uh, I do remember the uh, not so subtle hints. Right. <laughs> you well, know what I mean? <laughs> so for example, the, the first episode, some people are skeptical. They say, oh, there's no subtext like that. I'm like, oh yeah, bullshit. The very first episode um, is about um, Gabrielle's in an arranged marriage. I'm uh, summarizing, I'm paraphrasing. I'm leaving a lot out, but basically- yeah. Zena comes to her village, and this is where they first meet. And she, Gabrielle's in this arranged marriage, and um, she wants to go off on an adventure with this older woman. And adventure. Zena's like, Zena's like, no, 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 you stay here. You're too young. Stay out of it, right? So Zena goes and does her thing. Gabrielle follows and gets captured by what kind of creature? A one-eyed cyclops. A, 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 yeah, <laughs> yeah a, a centaur. No, a dragon. No, no. She gets captured by a cyclops who puts her in a cage, right? And she's saved by Xena. And by the end of the episode, she becomes, you know, runs off with Xena and becomes a companion. So mm -hmm. the symbolism there, it, it doesn't get any more on the nose than that, right? I mean, that's... Now, this was back in the 90s where, um, like, you had to be real careful what you put on TV. Like, I think even back then, if they just had it like a straight-up lesbian relationship, I think that would not have gotten on the air back then, to, you know, which, you know, for eh. people... Who, 
I, I don't know. Like there, that stuff was not really that acceptable back then. You know, what, what network was that on? Was that uh, USA? It was network like, or yeah, TNT or cable. one of those cable networks. I forget which. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, so I think they were really reluctant to, they had to really tone it down. But if you look all throughout the show, it's like that. Like whenever Z- yeah. Zena goes off and has like a, she would have flings with men occasionally when she'd come back to camp. Gabrielle would be all pissed off at her and be like, you do the dishes. I'm not doing the dishes today. And you're like, (laughs) (laughs) like it's all there guys. Like from the very first episode, it's definitely there. But anyways, that's maybe too much of a tangent. Didn't that, didn't that show? It it was like a branch off of a Hercules, 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 right? Yeah. With a, with Kevin Sorbo, whatever his name was. Right. You know what? I actually saw that guy in real life. One no time, I, I never met the guy, but it was like, it was like at, a, at an event. I just saw him walking by. Mm-hmm. Boy, is that guy short? Really? Oh. Huh. He's not, well, he's not like, like, like a midget or anything like that, uh, <laughs> or, or a little person, whatever the, the correct term is. But um, he is, I, I mean, I, I don't know what I was thinking, like, you know, because I was a fan of the show when I was a kid, you know, so uh-huh. for whatever reason, I must have thought just like in, in my mind's eye that he was bigger. I mean, he's Hercules, right? Right. You know? but, yeah. But uh, the way they depicted him on the show, I don't think they used uh, a whole lot of people that were like very taller than him. Unless- I thought Lucy Lawless was pretty tall, so hmm. that's pretty she's not. Yeah, I don't know how sh- tall she is. She's not small. She's, like, she's yeah, she's not small. She's got to be at least like five eleven or five ten, maybe. Well, let's look it up. Oh yeah, the internet wins again. <laughs> I have it. I have, I have a computer right in front of me. <laughs> well, I don't know who plays uh, Kevin Sorbo's companion there, but he's really short. Is it? Yes. Oh yeah, that's right. And again, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in that show, they definitely had a gay subtext in that show. It's, let's see, um, a little bit. Ever, like they had those lingering, like the looks lingering that looks. they would, yeah. they would trade. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Lucy Lawless height five ten. Okay, that's actually that's pretty tall for a woman, right? Isn't it oh, taller than me? Dude, yeah, I was right. Yeah, all right. I'm never right. <laughs> and Renee O'Connor, that's who plays Gabrielle. She's only five four. Mm-hmm. Sinead O'Connor. Renee, yeah, Renee, probably some relation or oh. other. Who knows? But yeah. Anyways, getting back to um, Lucy Lawless, one of my favorite moments in the show is when they finally, at the last episode, they finally kiss each other, right? And a lot of people oh, yeah. are like, "Oh, this is going to be so hot." Everybody's looking forward to it. And then oh. on screen, they do those those two ladies. I get the impression they're not into ladies at all. There's not a- at all because <laughs> they look like they're about to throw up, dude. <laughs> No chemistry. <laughs> no chemistry. You're like, oh, dude. It's just, I just thought that was yeah. so hilarious because everybody, probably <laughs> myself a little bit, I'm not going to lie, was looking forward to that moment. And then when it finally happened, it was just like, <laughs> it just did I was not trying to, happen I, at all, you know? I was trying to make that part of my spank bank and it just didn't work out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm not happy about it either. Yeah, it was hilarious. But anyways, let's get back to um to Zinnia, Ohio. <laughs> quite, quite the diversion there. I think Zinnia might be a flower. <laughs> Is it really? Okay. I, I don't know. I think it might be. But well, any in this case, March 27th, Zinnia, Ohio, a family saw seven objects, one football shaped and the others orb shaped. The objects were seen moving behind trees and in front of a tower. They made no sound. The objects were red and looked like they were on fire. The speed was estimated as faster than jets. Three of the objects flew towards the ground and disappeared. The size was one to two thousand times the size of a matchstick head. And I think that's that's something that's really difficult to estimate. So I think the witness is basically just saying uh, it was much, much bigger than a matchstick head, like way, way bigger, like huge, right? So the, the conclusion from the file is that this was insufficient data for evaluation. And that's pretty much the whole sighting in that case. Um, you know, and the, I, it was seen by, they said like three generations of this family, like the witness said it was seen by a whole slew of people, but only one witness actually filled out the data in the report, it was just that one person who saw it. But I mean, it sounds like it could very well be related to the uh, Michigan case, but that those are all the ones I had for the Michigan case. And like, like I said, that's just scratching the surface. If you go look into the files, there's tons of stuff that sounds like, yeah, that sounds similar, you know, like red and green flashing lights or the shape of the thing, like a football shaped craft that looked like it was on fire or whatever, like orbs around it. Like there's a lot around this time that matches up which to me is like, it's just really interesting. But yeah, so I have, I have a couple more here. If, um, I don't know, do you, do you agents have any more cases you wanted to talk about? I have a report I, I want to talk about at the end. I only okay. have one other thing that I want to talk about. All right. Um, but it's actually an anime that I just want to recommend called Neon <laughs> Genesis. Okay. <laughs> Evangelion. Yeah, uh, I haven't I seen just, that one. I think it's on oh, Netflix. Dude. Hmm. 
Oh, it is. Yeah. Oh, I think I recently, I, I just recently like uh, revisited it. Um, I, I remember watching it when I was younger mm-hmm. and uh, then I, I, I found it again on, uh, I th- I'm pretty sure it was Amazon Prime actually, I think. Oh, mm-hmm. all right. And um, boy, one is of, that one a good of those anime. streaming services. I'm just saying, if anybody's into anime, that is one worth watching if you haven't already. Uh, that's, that's a good one. Hmm. All right. I'm I'll just have to check it out. I mean, I've seen all the classics, you know, like uh, FMA and Trigun and Cowboy Bebop, which, ah, the casting for Cowboy Bebop. Uh, what's that guy's name? I like him as an actor, right? But um, he he played, um, he was in the Star Trek movie. He played, what was it, Sulu on there? And like, he's a good actor, but I just don't see yeah. him as Spike. I just don't, but... Yeah, I mean the voice acting is is well done though. You yeah. Know? No, I'm talking about they made a live action. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. My bad. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I but, thought you were talking about the. Yeah. But we'll see though. I mean, we'll, he could pull it off. We'll see. But uh, I don't know for sure. But anyway, yeah, I haven't seen that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, did you want to do your last case file, Ether? It's a report. Okay. It's not a witness statement. Do you want to finish the witness statements? Okay. I just have I just have two more here that I want to talk about. Um, and before I talk about this next one, I actually looked up. Because uh, this one talks about a, a wristwatch that stopped working. And I was thinking, when did they actually make different types of wristwatches? Because it used to be, wristwatches used to be just mechanical. So you would wind it and it would store that energy in a spring. And then the spring would run the watch, essentially. And it turns out that the first electric wristwatches were made in the 1950s. And they did this using solenoids and tuning forks. Believe it or not, before the quartz movement, they used tuning forks and wristwatches. Somehow they used a steel turning tuning fork tuned to 360 hertz powered by a solenoid and driven by a transistor oscillator circuit. I don't know what that means, but that's what Wikipedia said. But the first quartz movement was made by Seiko in the Astron in 1969. Now this is important to me because if you hear, if a witness says my stops my watch stopped working, if that's a purely mechanical watch versus an electric watch, that would probably be kind of different on how they would stop. Although I suppose a strong magnetic field could knock either one out. That may be neither here nor there. It may not have any bearing on anything, but I just thought it was interesting. And it's something I think about, like, what kind of wristwatch was that? And how could it have been stopped? What force could have done that? Maybe it was a coincidence and his watch was defective. I don't know. And in this one, he doesn't say what type of watch it was. But anyways, this one is uh, January 7th, 1966. Three miles southwest of Georgetown, Alabama. The conclusion, other psychological. In other words, Project Blue Book thought that this guy was a crackpot or crazy or making it up. But does that match what the guy says? Let's see. The witness saw a round silvery object 10 to 12 feet in diameter. It had a ring or hoop extending out 8 to 10 inches around the central horizontal and a 5 to 6 foot hatch on the bottom. Now remember one of the witnesses for the swamp gas case also reported seeing a hatch on it. It also had an 8 to 10 inch cone on top with a blinking green light. It That's sounded it? like a turbine engine. It what? Oh, no, I'm just... Oh. 8 to 10 inches. That's it? Oh, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> the, the witness reported the smell of sulfur or rotten eggs. During the sighting, his new watch stopped at 1527, or that's 327 in the afternoon, uh, at, at 1527 CST. He saw the object for one to two minutes at a distance of 20 feet while it hovered five feet above the ground. The engine sound increased and it rapidly accelerated, disappearing to the northeast in a few seconds. The name of the witness is redacted, but he was 18 years old and a student at the time of the sighting. His character references described him as very reliable. The FAA had nothing in the air below 1,800 feet and the Navy did not have any aircraft in the area. The highway where he saw it is not heavily traveled, and there's no houses within one mile of the sighting. Um, and it's it specifically says in the file that they checked up on character references, and everybody said that this was a normal, reliable dude. So it's not clear how they determined that this was a crackpot sighting. But it, like I said, often the conclusion doesn't match what the witness said, and they just they're looking for an easy explanation. And there's no easier explanation than just to say this guy's nuts. You know, that's easy as it gets, right? Yeah. So I actually, I have one more that I wanted to talk about here um, that actually I have a couple more, but you know, we're, we're getting on in time. It's, it's getting a bumping up towards an hour here. So um, might, might cut it a little short as far as that, but this one I got, I feel like I have to talk about. So this one was seen in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania on January 11th, 1966 conclusion, psychological. 
We'll leave it to the listeners to see what they think. The witness reported three flying saucers and 13 aliens. The aliens had one eye, two wings, and were purple. They flew around the hospital roof. The witness had a conversation with the beings and talked about, you know, going to their home planet and stuff like that. So was he in the hospital? Did, like, was he, he was he, said was that he, he was saw it through a window and they were flying around the hospital roof or something. Yes, but why was did he, he the call hospital? them purple people eaters? <laughs> exactly. Why was he in the hospital? <laughs> what yeah. kind of ward was he on? Maybe it was an appendectomy. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, that was. That was, you'll see stuff like that in the files as well, which is like purple aliens. Okay, bro. With one eye. <laughs> yeah, with one eye. Yeah, cool. So they, they must have been smacking into the building because they have no depth perception. I don't know. When did that song come out? One eyed purple people eater. I know, right? I didn't think of that actually. Uh, the recording that I remember hearing was like, like I want to see it from the 50s or yeah, something like that. It I, sounds like older. the 50s. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like the 50s. So I'm just saying. Maybe yeah. influenced. So I got a couple more here, but we're about, we're about an hour. So I think that was, was it uh, Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs? I think. I think that was it. Yeah, actually. Yeah. The, the same, the same guys that did a, um, oh, was, oh, hey, uh, Little Red Riding Hood. Okay. Yeah. Hey there, Little Red Riding Hood. <laughs> you sure? Are? I love that song, dude. Those are good songs. 50s was good for music. Yeah. They had yes. a good music. They had a yes, good sound in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so anyways, yeah, that that's um, I'll I'll have a couple more, but I'll cut it short so we can you know keep it on the about an hour this this time around. So what do you, you have one more for us, Agent Ether? Oh, so I was looking around and I got a little sidetracked. Yeah, while I was studying Blue Book, and I ran across a report. Now this isn't a witness statement; it's a report written in December 13, 1949. Okay, and it starts by referencing a letter written by Brigadier General Putt or Poot about, and I quote, the flying saucer problem. Hmm. So it's entitled Spaceship Considerations, written by one J.E. Lip. And basically it's an overview of our knowledge of physics of space propulsion, and it asks how likely is it that we have been visited by extraterrestrials? Interesting. I thought it was really interesting, and I summed it well, up. I in mean, the title, the title especially. So yeah. well, why would Why would he word it like that unless there's something he in, in particular he's focusing on right you know? this report just went on and on so it's really hard to sum it up quickly but i will try my best so astronomers make certain assumptions about what kind of planets can support life and so there are actually lots of calculations and descriptions of the science that was used to determine um, what planets and where life could have come from. So they looked at an area within 16 light years in any direction, and they narrowed down the parts of space where life was most likely to have come from if it was visiting our planet. They looked at 47 stars and then eliminated them, searching for possible life, meaning there couldn't be any white dwarves or binaries. And when they were done, they had 22 stars. Then they assumed life could only form on about half of them, so that left 11 stars total, and they did some fancy-schmancy calculations. Those are the best kind. I wish I could be fancy-schmancy, but I'm not. All right, they did some fancy-schmancy calculations, and they concluded the only way that somebody could have gotten here from a nearby star would be to have used a nuclear hydrogen-powered vehicle. Hmm. And they called these people, and I quote, a super race, an advanced Ooh. super race of extraterrestrials. And they said it has to be nuclear hydrogen because that's the best physics can do. Well, our physics. <laughs> well, yes. from what, yeah, from what we understand. Yeah. yeah. But this report was very uh, <laughs> biased, I would like to right. say. You know, basically, if we can't do it, no one can. Yes. That's, that's what I've run across time and time again with scientists. They'll say, well, it'll take this much energy to get from here to there. Therefore. But they base it on the calculations based on like a chemical rocket. So, of course, if you're using a chemical rocket, you're never getting anywhere. You know, you barely get to the moon on those things. Well, and some of that, like uh, that thought process, it, it, like from what I've seen and, and been frustrated by in my own personal, like, uh, you know, uh, goings on, I guess you'd say, would be in archaeology and like, uh, like archaeologists and uh, historians, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're so matter of fact about what could be possible. You, you know what I mean? It's like frustrating, you know? Well, they'd need enough power to escape from their home planet, escape from their star or sun, travel light years in a reasonable amount of time, decelerate at the Earth, and then turn around and travel back to their home planet. 
So the conclusion was that they couldn't. So therefore, there can't be this super race out there. It's just, it was too complicated. Hmm. Also, why would they be so interested in, end of quote, planet three of Seoul? Yeah. There, there's nothing here. Maybe they want to check out our defenses, but that's pretty much easy to reach a conclusion. And if you're a super race, why would you be interested? That's a one trip kind of thing. Yeah. Not people coming over, you know, to check us out again and again. So they concluded we just weren't interesting enough. So all sightings from the Earth are either physical or psychological. Hmm. Interesting. And that, the interesting thing, too, is that that's pretty much been the party line throughout this whole thing, you know, is the military stance at least. But if you look at the sightings, an awful lot of these sightings, people report craft that can circumnavigate our laws of physics. For example, they seem to not have to worry about inertia. They can start and stop without any apparent acceleration or braking, you know, like in the air, if you want an airplane to slow down in the air, it takes some doing and it takes some time. But many, many people report, you know, some craft hovering and then at the blink of an eye, now all of a sudden it accelerates to a very high speed out of nowhere. Like it doesn't have to, it doesn't accelerate slowly. It's just one minute it's, it's there and the next it's gone. Like it, they see it move, but all of a sudden it's traveling at three times the speed of sound. It doesn't have to ramp up to that. It's just from a dead stop to three times the speed of sound or whatever, right? Without breaking the sound barrier. Yeah, without breaking the sound well, barrier and without, you know, obviously destroying itself or its uh, occupants if there are any, right? Well, he here's the thing, though. I mean, I feel like some of the flatulence that, that I present at, at one time or another, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've broken the sound barrier. I'm quite positive, actually, to be to be honest. I've mean, heard I it. Mean it's to true. <laughs> I don't mean to toot my own horn, but damn it, toot, toot. You know what I mean? <laughs> All right. Was that your summary of the report, Agent Ether? It was. It was a really cool report. It was yeah, read. that does sound cool. All right. Well, that's about all we have for you this week. Thanks for listening. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. And if you enjoyed the show, you can really help us out by suggesting us to your friends. Keep it strange.